Uh, those kinds of words aren't the words, aren't the words that come from the world. Yeah. Those aren't the kind of words that come out of the mouth of those who don't know Christ. And I want to invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 20. If you were going to summarize Luke chapter 20 through verses 1 through 18, and I would just say the first two kind of, uh, well, the word I want to say is pericope. Does anybody know what a pericope is? Yeah, right, that's why I didn't want to say it. Who knows what a pericope is, right? The two first sections here, the first one being um, the authority of Jesus challenged, right? And then the parable of the wicked tenants really should be read together. They really should be read together. And, And sometimes that's just more important than other times. I mean, you can always read Scripture in its flow. You can always, you know, kind of follow the context and... You know, you can always kind of make connections between different passages and why they're put together like they are in the Gospels. Sometimes it's just way more important that they really be read in connection to one another. It's not that they have to be, but sometimes it is even more important. And uh, that certainly is true here. And, and the, the reason that I made the comment about only the redeemed would sing songs like we just sung is because that is just not the story of the world when it comes to uh, what they would say about Jesus. And what you have in this passage is you have the rejection of Jesus. You have the rejection of Jesus by Israel's religious leaders. And you have the rejection of Jesus, um, a story then of the rejection of Jesus, uh, the, of the prophets down through the ages. You know, the messengers of God. You have the rejection of the prophets down through the ages, um, which are a type not just of the reality of Israel, but of all of humanity, right? Because the story of the world is the rejection, is humanity's rejection of God, you know? And uh, uh, the story of the world really is of humanity's rejection of God. And um, then God entering to the picture to be redeemer, but of man even rejecting him. And so here you have what we're entering into is just what Jesus said was going to happen. It's just what Jesus said was going to happen. If you could just turn back to Luke chapter 9 quickly. Luke chapter 9, verse 21. And He strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Now we're going to come into this into Luke chapter 20 and what we're going to see is the religious leaders coming to Jesus, asking Him all kinds of questions that have no desire to learn anything, um, only to find a reason that they can, they've already rejected Him, but only find a reason that they can rally also the crowds against Him too, because the crowds are hanging on his words. The crowds, uh, some of the crowd thinks much of him, or at least marvels at him, but they're looking for a way to trap him to get the crowds on board too in the rejection. Okay? Which is ultimately what happens with the charge of blasphemy in the leading to the crucifixion. But that's what they're doing. So this is the chief priests and the scribes and the elders finally and fully rejecting Jesus in the temple. 
So remember, the presence of God comes, the Messiah, on the donkey, the foal of a donkey, in fulfillment of the promise, into Jerusalem, and the place, the presence of God actually arrives in the temple, the place of God's worship, the place where Jesus should be most recognized and most praised and most hailed and is completely rejected um, with just the, by the wickedness of the religious leaders. And so Israel's leaders here are rejecting Jesus. But make no mistake about this, Jesus isn't just a victim of them, he is rejecting them. He is rejecting them. And so, uh, if I could just summarize what um, I want to say here, and at least in what the text says explicitly, it's that Israel's religious leaders are rejecting Jesus, and he is rejecting them. So let's just work through the text. The authority of Jesus challenged. Chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple, you know, it's amazing, right? Because what has Jesus just done? He's just cleared the court of the Gentiles. Paving the way for Gentile worship. You know, in the big picture, in the rejection of Israel and the plan of God to make sure that the gospel goes among the nations, which was not a backup plan, was always the plan. It was supposed to be the plan with Israel, but Israel rejected Israel. God and his Messiah and kept Gentiles from God and God rejects them for uh, their wickedness and rejecting his purposes and now he is turning to the Gentiles and so he cleanses the Gentile court clearing the way big picture for um, all the Gentile meaning non-Jew all the nations to worship God and and I don't just think about yourself right I mean when you have a conflict of, I mean, and this is a conflict of conflicts, you know, and uh, the amount of malice that's directed at Jesus in the temple after clearing the court and turning the tables and, you know, people losing animals and money and everything else because Jesus was judging them and purifying the temple. And then he, he leaves the temple, you know, and he goes and rests, sleeps, Bethany, at Bethany, and then. He comes back the next day and he teaches in the temple. I mean, that just takes some guts. Jesus is just really manly. You know, the last thing that we want to do is face the person we have a conflict with about anything. And Jesus just walks back in there with divine authority and teaches. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple, he's preaching the gospel. And preaching the gospel the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, you know, so you kind of have this picture, right? Jesus is teaching and the religious leaders, um, which, you know, they're like, you kind of have this picture, they're making a beeline for Jesus. They came up and they said to him, tell us by what authority you do these things. Or who it is that gave you this authority? Right now, in one sense, the particular question they're asking is, you know, by what authority do you do these things and who commissioned you to do these things? Clear the Gentile court, preaching the gospel in the temple. Okay? These things. Who 
Who gave you this authority? By what authority do you do these things? Where is your commission from to do these things? Now, in one sense, it wouldn't necessarily be a bad question. I mean, think about this. Think about if... um, Think about if someone just decided, just decided of their own accord, I'm called to ministry and I'm going to start making YouTube videos preaching. And by doing so, of their own accord and their individual autonomy, they think themselves qualified just to start preaching the Bible and they gain a large following doing this. Well, it would be a right question to ask in a situation like that, by what authority do you do these things? I mean, who has commissioned you? And the answer would be no one has. You have just decided of your individual autonomy that you are a um, a called of God to preach. And you are now carrying out with no oversight and no accountability and no other eyes have been on you to evaluate either your character or your teaching ability. You're just on your own authority. And lots of ministries are this way. Lots of ministry things that are non-church, that aren't close to the local church, right? They're not things that are in Scripture. And they're they're ministry, and you have to recognize they're ministries on their own authority. No one has sent them to preach. Except in Scripture, the pattern is Everyone who is preached is sent to preach by men who preach and who pastor and who shepherd the flock of God. It's just the only way it happens in Scripture. You know, it would be a whole nother level. Imagine it this way. Maybe you can see it more clearly this way. If I said, or if, if uh, it, Peter, Peter would be a good example of this. Of, you, could, you could see Peter doing this, you know. Let's say there were, let's just imagine for a second, Jesus had called 11 disciples, and uh, Peter is just like, I'm 12, I'm 12, I'm number 12. (laughs) You know, what would Jesus ask him? (laughs) You know, if he just kind of, if he just kind of went about functioning like a disciple who hadn't actually been called to be a disciple, he'd probably just say, Peter, go home. (laughs) But the point would be, Peter, by what authority are you an apostle? No one just gets to declare themselves one of the twelve, right? All right. And that sounds a little bit more clearly scandalous to us because we've entirely lost the nature of maybe how pastors are pastors and that kind of thing. But then press it even further. Now Jesus is the self-proclaimed Messiah. But is he self-proclaimed? See, that's the question. What they're saying, what they're saying by their question is you are a self-proclaimed Messiah. Because they're not asking the question to learn. You understand. We'll see that in just a second because Jesus knows that about them. 
he's always aware of the malice against him. And he, uh, he knows exactly what's happening with them. And so um, he deals with them accordingly. Tell us by what authority do you do these things? So the question at one level wouldn't necessarily be wrong. It's not that the question's wrong. It's not that the question's wrong. Who it is that gave you this authority? Well, Jesus answers them, but he doesn't actually really answer them. He's so wise. And so he, he doesn't just answer their question. He doesn't say, well, I have this authority from God, my Father. He has commissioned me to do these things. But, so why doesn't he just say that? Why doesn't he just answer the question like that? Because it would have been useless to answer the question like that. And then they would have found a way to rile up the crowds against him at that point, and it wasn't time yet. And so um, it would have been pointless to answer the question like that. Because it was pointless to ask the question anyways. What had Jesus been doing? What had Jesus been doing? He had been doing all the things that demonstrate his divine authority. Right? Jesus wasn't doing like healings the way places and churches do them today where like they make a big deal about somebody's leg growing an extra quarter inch. You know? That's just not what he was doing. Like we have so much nonsense today. Jesus was completely restoring people's uh, body full of sickness for decades that everyone was aware of. He was doing it in public places and in private places. He was doing it with massive witnesses. He was raising those who were dead. You know? He was demonstrating all through everything we've studied in the Gospel of Luke that he did what only God could do. What do you mean, where do I get my authority? Where else would I get it except from God my Father. But Jesus is a master at trapping those who come to trap Him. And He answered them with a question. I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John, meaning John the Baptist, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And so what he's speaking of is the work of John the Baptist. And I realized this week I've never really given enough weight to John the Baptist. I've never, I think, fully had my mind around how significant the work of John the Baptist was. And, um, and, the, and the level of influence that John had. You know, so actually you can read about um, in Acts... I'm not going to remember the chapter. When the Apostle Paul goes to Ephesus, maybe Acts 19, um, John the Baptist actually is more well-known there than Jesus is when the Apostle Paul arrives. And countless Israelites thought John the Baptist is a prophet of God. And they went out to the Jordan and were baptized by him. 
John the Baptist is the only um, New Testament ministry that is, you know, the New Testament prophetic ministry that is prophesied in the Old Testament other than Jesus. The Old Testament's very clear that there would be one who would prepare the way of the Messiah, and so John the Baptist is baptizing, he's preaching repentance, and he's calling the people to repentance, and people are repenting. We studied this all the way back in Luke chapter 3. You know, they're hearing John's preaching that the judgment of God is so close because it was so close. You know, if you think, let's say, 30 A.D., John the Baptist's ministry is happening, you know, only 40 years till Jerusalem is destroyed. You know, and right at the moment where Jesus is going to come on the scene, John the Baptist is preaching and he's preparing the way for Israel to receive their Messiah, for the presence of God to actually dwell among His people. And so countless thousands of people have come to the Jordan and John has baptized them. And then Jesus goes and is also baptized. And what happens when Jesus is baptized? A voice from heaven. This is My beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And the Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove. Not, not, not a dove. Like a dove. Somehow, the Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove. And at that moment, his ministry is inaugurated and his authority is granted and he is revealed to Israel as the Messiah, as a Spirit-anointed Christ, Messiah, Deliverer. Just as the Old Testament said, given authority from His Father. You know, later, when in the Transfiguration, with, when Peter, James, and John go up on the mountain, what does, the Father, what, is, what does the Father say to them? This is My beloved Son. Listen to Him. He speaks on My behalf. He acts with divine authority. He carries out My will. So, Jesus asked the question, I will also ask you a question now. Tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Why is the question asked if from heaven or from man? And so they go to discuss, right? But if, if it's from heaven, right? Let's just see what they say. Verse 5, and they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So if the, if the crowds of people are convinced that John was actually a prophet sent from God, and we say right now that the baptism of John is merely from man, they're going to stone us for rejecting God's prophet. Okay? So they're trapped, they're trapped on that side of the coin. The other issue is, though, if John's baptism, if John comes preaching and baptizing, and his ministry is divine ministry, anointed by God himself, sent by God himself to prepare the way of the Messiah, if it's from heaven, right, they'll say, why didn't you believe me? 
Or he'll say, why don't you believe, why didn't you believe me? Why? Why, why, why? So if John's ministry is divinely ordained, why will Jesus say, why didn't you believe me? John the Baptist, John the Baptist is unique, right? Jesus even says, you know, greatest among all, there is no, no one born among women greater than John the Baptist. John is the one who put his finger on Jesus and pointed to him and said, right there, that man is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The Apostle John's Gospel, beginning in verse 29, the next day, he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might. So, if John's ministry is divinely ordained, if it is heaven sent to reveal Jesus, and they answer the question and say John's ministry is from heaven, the reason Jesus will say, why didn't you believe me is because to believe that John's ministry was from heaven, it doesn't make any sense when John is the one pointing out Jesus without also acknowledging that Jesus is from heaven and that Jesus is God the Son. But the religious leaders rejected John the Baptist. So they believe that he is a ministry on his own authority. But they won't say it. Because they're trying to find a crafty way to get rid of Jesus. And if John the Baptist's ministry is a ministry on his own authority, a self-proclaimed prophet, then Jesus' ministry is also self-proclaimed Messiah. His ministry is merely of man also. And so what Jesus is doing is trapping them in the reality that they are the ones rejecting John and they are the ones rejecting him. So how do they answer? So they answered. Jesus just shames them by his wisdom. And, and so they answered that they did not know where it came from. They just said, we don't know. We don't know. And when they wouldn't commit themselves to an answer to Jesus' question, he wouldn't commit themselves to a simple little answer to their question. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And this is Jesus' rejection of them. Look, guys. 
you're done with me, and I'm done with you. He's been patient. Jesus has been patient, patient, patient. God, his Father, has been patient with Israel. Patient with Israel. Patient with Israel. And God is patient with this world. And he is patient with us. And he is patient. And he is longing for all men to come to repentance. He is patient. Wanting all men to be saved. You understand what I mean by that? It's not that all men will be saved. God has no pleasure in the death or the judgment of the wicked. He would prefer men to be saved. But man will not repent. That's why I say the story of the world is the rejection of God and His Messiah. The world will not repent, will not repent, will not repent. And so Jesus is now, we're at the point here in history with Israel. You guys are rejecting me and I am finally rejecting you. Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. He's done with them. He's done with them. What else would he have to do to prove himself to them? What words could he say at this point that would have swayed their mind? And that's what Jesus knows. See the parable he tells now tells the story of God with his people and as a type of God with the world. And he began to tell the, this, the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants. So just think, the, the man who planted the vineyard is uh, God the Father in the parable. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants, the servants being the prophets, so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat the servant, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. So God the Father sends them another servant. These are prophets, just like John the Baptist, that they've rejected. This is a long line of what they've done with the prophets. But the tenants beat him, sent him away empty-handed, and he sent another servant, another prophet, But they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. The same words uttered at Jesus' baptism where he was granted divine authority from heaven. Perhaps they will respect him. I won't just send a prophet who is a prophet among many. I will send a prophet who is God the Son. Perhaps they will respect him. The patience of God the Father with Israel. And the malice of Israel against their God. I will send my beloved Son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to to themselves, this is the heir. And that's really the issue with the religious leaders of Israel. Jesus' Jesus reign is a threat to their power. 
Jesus' reign and rule is a threat to their power. Jesus' authority is a threat to their self-proclaimed authority because they're the ones operating on their own authority and not divinely commissioned from God. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. We want to keep ruling our way and have our own worship our way and uh, we want to do things our way so that people look to us for our great religious reputation. We want to continue to make the money that we're making off of the temple system. And if we let him live, he's going to take all that away from us. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. You know, in the big picture scheme of salvation history, this is salvation coming to the ends of the earth. When they heard this, they said, Surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Quoted from Psalm 118.22, you know? Well, what does this passage of Scripture mean then? That Jesus has become the the stone that the builders rejected. The stone that Israel rejected has become the cornerstone bringing Jew and Gentile together, Israel and all the nations together, the, the cornerstone that sets the two walls in alignment and turning them into one temple. These are things like, this is what's transpiring here when you read these kinds of things in First Peter and you read about the cornerstone and us being built up into a temple of the living God in Ephesians and you know Ephesians chapter 2. The cornerstone is Jesus, and he's the one who's rejected, but he's also the one building up all the people of God in all the earth into a a living temple. And then Jesus says, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Meaning that he is a stumbling block. You know, Isaiah told us that Jesus was going to be a stumbling block to Israel. And when the cornerstone falls on anyone, it will crush him, meaning Jesus will judge those who reject him. Jesus will judge those who reject him. Well, Israel's religious leaders are rejecting Jesus, and he is rejecting them. But make no mistake about it, Jesus is the one who possesses divine authority. And this is the way it will always be with those who carry the message of the gospel. Jesus is preaching the gospel, right? And I tell you this all the time. When you're hated, 
for preaching the gospel. Don't let other Christians tell you it's just your fault. Our evangelicalism is so soft and sappy and horrendous. It never says anything that would ever actually give any kind of threat of any kind to anyone, ever. And so when anybody actually preaches the gospel or says Jesus rejects people, Jesus here is finally rejecting Israel. It's over for them. Like, we're at the end moment. It's over for them. And this is the way it will be for everyone in the world. Jesus is being patient with you. The reason you're still breathing, the reason you have today and you woke up this morning, is the mercy of God. And it's God's kindness meant to lead you to repentance because if you have lived for self and sin, and everyone in this room has, and if you're still doing so, it's merely God's patience that you're still here. Maybe even an additional kindness that He would have you actually hear to hear the Word of God. And He is being patient with you, but His patience will... There will come a time where His patience is done. You have no excuse. God's divine authority is written all over creation. It's written in His church, which witnesses to Him all over the world. It's written in His Word, which tells us that He is the Savior. And you will meet Him one day, either as Savior or as Judge. And if you have rejected Him your whole life, He had been patient with you, and then it will come a time where it has been enough, and you will face the judgment of God, and you will deserve it, and you will have no excuse. There is one way to be made right with God. Jesus Christ is the one God-man of salvation that can save your soul. Every other philosophy and thought in the world is empty deceit and will damn you. I mean, in real time, in this life, Jesus is so done with Israel that the temple is going to be completely destroyed. Jerusalem taken over by Rome. People fleeing. Remember we saw the women and children are going to suffer terribly in Israel under the judgment of God from the army of Rome. Jesus says that to them, about them and to them. What is He going to do with us in eternity? That's merely a temporary judgment of God in this life, but what about in eternity? Of course, it has an eternal sense too to all who died that day in rejection of God. Jesus has divine authority and He has divine authority to reject all who reject Him. And when you carry the message of the gospel anywhere, anywhere that you actually carry the gospel to that has any edge at all, in other words, to say you carry a gospel that actually matters, you will be rejected. 
and I don't want you because, you know, enough people have blamed me that what, anything that I've just said, if somebody leaves rejecting Jesus just because of what I've just said, that it's my fault that they left rejecting Jesus. No, it isn't. Your problem is not with me. And I'm not to blame for the simplicity of the gospel. You can be saved. You could turn to Jesus and be saved. The problem is with Jesus. It's with God's Son. Nothing has changed in terms of the rejection of those who carry the message of the Gospel. So, as our culture becomes increasingly pagan, just pagan, 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 as our culture becomes increasingly pagan, And as we can't figure out anymore, like, you know, what male and female is. Just completely, <laughs> you know, that's just rebellion. You understand that that's just rebellion against God, the maker of the heavens and earth. As you carry the message of the gospel, you know, and, you, and you have to deal with these increasingly. It's just common to have to deal within your families. Within your families. Within my family. To deal with the reality of you know, this non-binariness. And usually with all the teenagers at this stage. And you have a, you know, what do you do? What do you do when you have children who are 2, 4, and 6... And their cousin, um, they've always known, their cousin, and they've always known uh, to be a girl, but now dresses like a boy, you know, ensures that her hair looks like a boy, and now wants to take on the name of a boy and function as if she's a boy and expects everyone else to function like she's a boy. And you held her as a little girl, as a baby, because you babysat her. And you babysat her, and you played with her as a toddler. And as she grew up, you sat over the holidays, and you, you played games with her in every, in every way she was a girl, and the way she acted in every single way. But now, what are you going to do at Thanksgiving when it's time to get together and your two, four, and six-year-old are now, how are you, what are you going to do with your two, four, and six-year-old in this kind of environment? And I'll tell you, these kinds of public perversions shouldn't even exist publicly. These are things that shouldn't even exist. They're so shameful. It's like in Bloomington, right, it's normal for, to see, you know, men kissing men and women holding hands while they're walking. And, but you understand, we've lost the shame of that. This shouldn't even be allowed on a public street. It's so shameful. It's monstrous rebellion against God. And it's harmful to society. 
and we're arrogant. We're like the church in Corinth. We're arrogant, thinking we can just let wickedness prevail publicly everywhere and think that we can just handle it. And in fact, we can glory in it and celebrate it and think it's good. What are you going to do? You're going to come into conflict with your family. Because if we shouldn't even see some of these things publicly on our streets, when we had shame still, these things were relegated to alleys and people's own homes, which is the way it should be. But what are you going to do? You know what's going to happen? What's going to happen is your family's going to think that it's your fault, and your family's going to think that you're just a self-righteous, you know, you're just self-righteous, and you have no compassion, and that it's, it's your fault that you won't come to the Thanksgiving celebration because you just don't want to put your kids under that kind of pressure for the first six years, eight years of their life that they've been calling their cousin, who's a girl, by a girl's name and now wants to be understood to be a boy with a boy's name. Understand, this is the world's rejection of Jesus' authority. And when you do that, it will go the same with you. It will go the same with you. And it's not your fault. It's your faithfulness. Don't let the softness of evangelicalism tell you everything is your fault when someone hates you. We have a Bible. This is what's always happened. Anyone who has divine authority, which you do as a Christian, to minister the gospel of Jesus Christ to all of those around you. You will be treated like the servants. You will be treated like the servants. And it's not your fault. Of course, in the background of this particular text is the disciples are the faithful. The faithful are in this circle, even though they're not mentioned because Jesus is laser-focused on the rejection of the leaders. But there is the redeemed here. And Jesus has authority, not just in his judgment over those who, not in just rejecting those who reject him, but in saving those who follow him. He has authority over your eternal life and holds it in his hand. And one day when the books are opened and the Lamb's book of life is opened and if you have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, your name will be found there. And Jesus has authority. He has power to keep your name in that book. Jesus doesn't have an eraser. He has authority over your salvation and your eternal life. 
Just as he has authority to reject those who reject him, he has authority to save those who believe and keep them. Even while they go into the world and everybody blames them and everybody else thinks it's their fault because you're getting blamed and as you suffer and as you go the way of all the servants of God have always gone and as you experience the malice of the world Jesus has authority to keep your name written there until the day that you hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Because God, the Father, loves the servants that he sends and receives them and never rejects them and always keeps them by the blood of his Son. Stand with me for prayer. And by the way, the problem isn't that you're self-righteous and that you don't lack compassion. The problem with your family is they don't have compassion on your children. That's the actual problem. You have to be able to see through these things and think about what's actually happening. right? And what, just like in this passage, the religious leaders, what proud people always do is they blame you. They, blame the, they say that you're doing the thing they're actually guilty of. So proud people always, we call it projection. It's like sin projection, and we all do this. Be careful about this, right? But the religious leaders are projecting upon Jesus what they're actually doing. He's a self-proclaimed authority, but they're the ones who are the self-proclaimed authority. What your family will do is they'll say, you have no compassion and you're self-righteous, but they're the ones not having compassion on the littlest and weakest and most vulnerable. Understand? It's really important that you understand that. Father, thank you that you keep us by the blood of Christ. Thank you that our names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life and we have received a peace treaty with our God. And oh God, may we repent of ways in which we reject the authority of Jesus Christ. We reject your Holy Spirit-inspired word even in the church today. God, forgive us in our church for ways that we reject what your words say on the page right in front of us when it actually really matters for us to be a godly wife or a godly husband or god, godly children or godly teenagers or um, godly elders and pastors and uh, godly mothers and fathers. Forgive us. This is us going in the same way even. Lead us to Repentance. And oh God, may we be a people who can celebrate your judgments and sing of your judgments as we long for our rescue. Thank you that you have authority over our eternal life, Lord Jesus. That you have secured it. We have a guarantee of our inheritance by your Spirit. And nothing can take that away. But oh, let us Be careful to walk in your ways under your authority. Everywhere we go, starting here in the church, 
in Jesus' name. Amen.